Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Jesus the Christ has a goal, to serve God. On that goal, he remained focused. He had a purpose to teach love. On that purpose, he remained focused. He had a mission to demonstrate to people how to lovingly serve each other while serving God. To that mission alone, he gave all of his energy. In his own words, he revealed the power of having a purpose when he said, But for this purpose was I born. In essence, Jesus was saying to us, When your life is for a purpose, you will rise above all difficulties. Focus on the goal. Focus on the purpose. Focus on accomplishing the goal. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people get out of bed with no goal. Going to work is not a goal. It's an activity. Paying bills is not a purpose. It is an activity. Providing for a family is not a mission. It is an activity. Your goal is the what of your life. The goal is not the place you begin, it is the place you end up. Your purpose is the why of your life, why you as an individual are moving toward the goal, the end. Your mission is the how of your life. Once you are clear about the what, the why, and the how, you have a focus. You have something to live for that moves you into, through, and out of the activities of your life. We were each born for some purpose. Jesus was clear. He was focused. He mastered his mind and his life with focus. He was kind enough to leave us instructions on how to do what he did. He said, follow me. For the things I have done, greater things than this shall you do. It's here in the Archbishop's Corner that Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair makes us aware that the master teacher left us instructions. He said, do as I have done. In the Archbishop's Corner, we stay focused. You turn your attention from the activities of your daily life, and you discover your goal, your purpose, and your mission. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for helping us discover the why of life, our purpose, and our mission. How are you? I'm fine, but that's a pretty tall order you're giving me in those opening remarks. Well, it very much fits with what the purpose of Jesus coming into our lives was all about. And I think if you help us understand clearly what his message was in our lives, you're helping us discover the why of life our purpose and our mission. Yes, well, that's the job of uh, all of us for one another, but particularly for a priest or a bishop to try to... an archbishop especially. I suppose, yes. (laughs) Archbishop, this week is filled with things, but two of the things that I'd like to specifically talk about is Friday's feast, uh, celebration of the feast day of St. Cecilia, who is most recognized for her love of music. St. Cecilia was betrothed to a pagan named Valerian, Despite her consecration to God, she's known for singing in her heart to the Lord on her wedding day and was able to convert Valerian and his brother to Christianity. Let's talk a little bit, in honor of St. Cecilia, talk a little bit about church music today. Well, first let me say that Cecilia is one of those ancient Christian martyrs, Roman martyrs, you Mm. know, that are still very much commemorated uh, in ancient churches in Rome. And uh, they were like the part of that original group of witnesses who who gave their lives under sometimes very extreme, well, any giving of life is under an extreme circumstance, but kind of etched themselves into the memory of the church 
and became uh, an important part of that memory, so much so that, you know, imagine after all these centuries, uh, St. Cecilia is still commemorated as she is, um, still mentioned in the first Eucharistic prayer, the Roman canon at Mass. Uh, and so their their memory, and not just their memory, but their, their actual uh, presence in heaven lives on to intercede for us. And yes, sometimes because of something that's said about them, they're attached to a particular kind of... Uh, Patronage and Saint Cecilia is the one uh, particularly attached to church music. Well, she, it said that she found God in music. Yes, well, you know, music is so absolutely uh, important for the human soul and the human psyche. I think it was Shakespeare who wrote uh, in one of his uh, pieces that, uh, you know, the person who's without music is not to be trusted. <laughs> that doesn't mean if, you don't, if you're tone deaf, you're not to be trusted. It just means that if you, you know, if, if you have an aversion to the beauty of music, it's not a good sign. Uh, and I think um, that so music, not just for Christianity, but raise, you know, if prayer is the lifting of your mind and heart to God, Certainly, music uh, is capable of uh, of doing that in a in a way that that goes beyond just the spoken word. Uh, and there's, you know, even a sense of the about harmony and and uh, the harmony of the universe and of creation being reflected in the harmonies and uh, tones of music. I remember I did a paper once when I was in college on Saint Augustine, uh, what he had to say about music, and it's very interesting. You know, he talked about how music, uh, the kind of harmonies and the kind of music you have can can either incite a person to virtue or to vice, to uh-huh. what is good or bad. And, of course, I think we see that today, or always see it, but uh, without taking sides about musical taste, you know, sometimes music can really be um, very uplifting and uh, spiritual, and other times it can be, uh, shall we say, earthy and uh, even revel in things that are not, not good. So... Um, Church music, I think uh, right now, uh, quite honestly, I think we're in many ways in the doldrums. And by that I mean that, um, and I'm not trying to uh, say that in a former time things were uh, perfect and good and now they're not. I remember reading in a recent uh, history book about uh, the church in in, uh, the 19th century that in Rome uh, uh, in the mid-1800s, it was not uncommon for a priest at mass to break into some chorus from an opera and sing it during mass. <laughs> so if we think we have our liturgical abuses now, uh, they they were also present there because it's not appropriate, you know, to sing from an opera in church, a secular thing. But the point is that uh, today we have a, a, a wide variety of music, and uh, and that's very legitimate. But I think not all music is appropriate for church. Uh, uh, and so we try to find uh, music that, you know, the definition of prayer is to raise your mind and heart to God, uh, that that's what we, we want to do. While we're on this topic, I, I just want to bring up something that somebody wrote in to me to uh, voice a particular complaint about the Sunday television mass that was just celebrated not long ago. And, and there was a children's choir that was on, and the Gloria was said and not sung. And this woman felt that since, and she quoted the, the saying that singing is praying twice, the the choir should have been singing the Gloria. And why wasn't the Gloria sung? The Gloria does not have to be sung on a Sunday Mass. No, no none of the things absolutely have to be sung. You know, in the old days, uh, before the conciliar reforms, 
there was a high mass and a low mass. A high mass was sung, a low mass was recited. And uh, it's true that the Gloria and the Sanctus, they are songs. The words are meant to, you know, they're meant to be a song, but that doesn't mean that they can't be uh, recited. so, you know, today... Who would every, make that decision then? Well, everybody's got a thought about everything today, what they want and don't want. I say, you know, that what is not uh, forbidden uh, is permitted. It's a legitimate choice to say the Gloria rather than to sing it. But the preference is where it can be done. You had a reason that day for not doing it with the, the children's day, choir yeah. there and the celebrant, that those are things that people have to respect. I think the problem comes in is... Um, what is perceived to be arbitrary decisions. And by that I mean that it used to be that there was a defined high mass and it was a defined low mass. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up at Queen of Heaven Parish in Detroit, if you wanted to go to the high mass, you went to the 10 o'clock mass. And everything that was sung was sung because they were prescribed what to sing, all the parts of the mass. If you wanted to go to a low mass, you went to 1130. And they didn't mix and match, and it wasn't up to the priest who had the Mass what he was going to do or the choir director. It was prescribed. Today, the problem is that all these things are done by decisions of people locally or personally, and so people's expectations and what actually other people are deciding doesn't always match, and it leads to frustration. It leads to complaints. Now, not everything that people are doing is always legitimate. Sometimes they're doing things that are not proper, but certainly in this case, it's well, in, in, in this case, I'm yeah. sure that the priest took, the celebrant took into consideration the fact that it is a television mass, and there's a limited amount of time for the television mass. Yeah, and and it perfectly would have, legitimate would have taken too much time to to sing the Gloria. Well, you know, before the the ordinary of the mass also included the credo. The credo, the creed, was always sung too. This is true. Uh, and so we don't do that much anymore. In fact, very rarely do we do it. Mm. Uh, the only place you often hear the creed still sung in the chant form is at the at the Holy See in, in Rome at the Vatican. They sing the creed. Uh, we don't do it very often, even at the cathedral here, and maybe we should. Moving right along, let's talk about what's happening this Saturday. It's National Adoption Day, a collective national effort to raise awareness of the more than 123,000 children waiting to be adopted from foster care in America How can we encourage, Archbishop, and assist women to place their child up for adoption as opposed to having an abortion? Well, that's the work of of many uh, people, uh, certainly of all the pro-life efforts that are made uh, to not only encourage women not to have an abortion, but also to encourage them by providing alternatives to abortion. You know, That's that's what we try to do. Um, what pro-life tries to do. And I think uh, that's a very important thing because there are couples who really would like to have a child and and can't for whatever reason, and uh, adoption uh, is an option. But not only that, there are many uh, very outstanding, uh, loving families that have children of their own and still adopt children as well that are in need. Uh, I've known some wonderful Catholic families that have their own kids, and, and, uh, but also have adopted children, including children from other countries, you know, who, who are in need of, of uh, a home. And I can tell you this, more than once it's happened, uh, I've seen it, that a, a young couple's trying to conceive a child and they just don't seem to be able to do that, and so they go and adopt a child. And once they adopt a child, then they do conceive a child of their own. 
which is really a beautiful thing. There's yeah. something about that that um, in God's providence and maybe even in our physiognomy that responds somehow uh, to this, and they actually have, have a, a, a child. And I've seen it, like I say, more than once. Almost as if God is, is granting a reward by uh, granting this gift of a, of, a, of a child. Yeah, I mean, it's such a loving thing to do. And um, I know that it's fraught with difficulties today. You know, the church struggles to continue keeping its adoption services because our Catholic charities in the United States have been very active in placing children for adoption successfully in homes. But the the ideological uh, movement now, we we insist that we believe that a child should have a father and a mother. And therefore, we won't place children uh, in situations where there's not a man and a woman in marriage to receive them. And so we are told that, we, we, you know, our funds are going to be cut off, we're going to be ostracized, we're going to be outlawed, we're going to be everything else, because we, we this is our belief. Here's a case of religious freedom, you know, that if we can't do that, because there are plenty of, uh, you know, heterosexual couples, father and mother, who want a child, and we insist that that's our belief, and it is. Um, and uh, so there's another, uh, you know, danger to, uh, uh, to, to the process of, of uh, adoptions. Now you're talking about religious freedom, and next Sunday is the last Sunday within the church calendar year, and it is the Feast of Christ the King, and I understand there's a connection between that feast and religious liberty. Yes, for, for some years our uh, Committee on Religious Freedom of the United States Catholic Bishops Conference uh, focused on the 4th of July as a time to talk about uh, religious freedom and the threats to religious freedom in the world. But they've decided that it could be better done, uh, focus on the Feast of Christ the King, which is always the last Sunday of the church year before Advent starts. And, you know, Christ the King, that Christ is the true ruler, uh, not only of our hearts, but really of everything, of the world. And so uh, the freedom, religious freedom, uh, our freedom, uh, God-given freedom, uh, is something that can be mentioned or prayed for on uh, the Feast of Christ the King. And, you know, there's so many threats to religious freedom in our country. There is a very militant movement to, uh, as society rejects uh, traditional Judeo-Christian morality, and opens up everything from uh, uh, homosexual marriage to all kinds of interventions uh, scientifically into into the physiognomy of people and, and all these things to really uh, tell the church we have no right to uh, absent ourselves from these things or not to uh, endorse them or, uh, or, or that we have no right uh, to, to say that this is not for us and for our activities. And this is becoming uh, more and more of a uh, of a threat. And One of the Democratic candidates for president is openly speaking about the fact that the church's tax-exempt status should be taken away because of the fact that it doesn't support LGBT marriage. Yes. Well, there's a perfect example, yeah. What be- what originally came about is a kind of uh, uh, idea of, of, of um, opening the doors to society to a particular group uh, or situation of people has now become, in some people's minds, an ideology that is going to be forcibly imposed upon everybody and forcibly imposed upon the church. And we will never accept that. And uh, who knows what uh, the future holds. But the key, of course, in uh, our country is uh, our Catholic people. If they vote, and when you vote, that's the one thing that politicians listen to, They, if, mm-hmm. if you vote. 
And uh, but if you don't vote or you don't speak up, well, then they will listen to the people who do vote and who do speak up. This is not the job of bishops uh, alone to to somehow meet this challenge. It is the challenge of our Catholic people, and I dare say of all people of goodwill who don't mean to be against anybody, but who say we have a right, people of religion have a right uh, not to be uh, compelled uh, to do these things. That are against their faith. Yes. Archbishop, uh, let's talk a little bit now about the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis that is drawn from some of the Pope's writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and we'll ask you to comment with your own thoughts on what Pope Francis has said. This is taken from his Angelus address, delivered on January 29th of 2017, and it's called, You Are Blessed Only When You Are Converted. Pope Francis says, Jesus manifests God's desire to lead men to happiness. This message was already present in the preaching of the prophets. God is close to the poor and the oppressed, and he delivers them from those who mistreat them. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus follows a particular path. He starts with the word blessed, which is to say happy. He continues with guidance on how to be happy, and he concludes by making a promise. The cause of blessedness or happiness lies not in your current state, for example, the poor in spirit, they who mourn, they who hunger for righteousness, the persecuted, but in the subsequent promise Jesus makes to be welcomed with faith as a gift from God. One starts from a condition of hardship so that one can open oneself to God's gift and enter the new world, the kingdom announced by Jesus. This is not something that happens automatically. It is a way of life that comes from following the Lord. Thus, the reality of hardship and affliction is seen from a new perspective and experienced according to the conversion that comes about. You are truly blessed only if you have converted, for only then are you able to appreciate and relish all of God's gifts. Your thoughts, Archbishop? Yes, well, by converted here, the Holy Father means that you have have received and accepted the kingdom of God. That is to say that when you're enduring hardships and difficulties and such, you don't uh, respond according to the way of the world, which is the way of either giving in or of uh, or of uh, joining forces with things that are evil and oppressive, but rather that you endure with faith and love whatever comes your way and uh, that your blessedness is to be found in that. So it, it relates to other things our Lord said, you know, that when somebody asks for your shirt, you give them your coat as well or, or vice versa. Or And when you, you know, you, you pray for those who hate you and turn the other cheek. In other words, you recognize that uh, there is a higher reality at work here in the hand, and a higher justice in the hands of God and that uh, in many ways the order of this world will be reversed in eternity. People who are, you know, oppressed here will be... Uh, the rulers of the uh, in the world to come, uh, and and those who who are uh, uh, crying now will 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 laugh. You know, the, I mean, obviously these are poetic images, but yeah. to make a point that uh, that the if you if you accept if you live the kind of life Jesus lived, which includes the crucifixion, then you will truly be blessed, and you will you will uh, by your self denial, your self emptying, you will find eternal joy and vindication. Sometimes we have to be down on our knees in order to hear what God is trying to tell us. Absolutely. He, uh, the Pope says, one starts from a condition of hardship so that one can open oneself to God's gift and enter the new world, the kingdom announced by Jesus. Yeah, sometimes only hardship, failure, and sorrow opens our eyes 
to the deeper realities of life. You know, the heart grows by being wounded. It, it, it's, it's part of, of our human experience and the truth about being a human being. Let's look at our gospel now on this 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time, the 17th day of November. Today's reading is from Luke's gospel, the 21st chapter. And after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, for your thoughts. As some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things which you see, the days will come when there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign when this is about to take place? Take heed that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for this must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be a time for you to bear testimony. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Archbishop, the days will come when there will not be left a stone upon another stone. What should we take away from this particular gospel? Well, as we end, as we come near to the uh, uh, end of the church year, every year we we start to hear these gospels uh, about the end times. About the and this has two layers. The one is Jesus talking about uh, the destruction of the temple, and uh, the and and connected with this is the end of the world. But the message uh, for all of us is if we think of a kind of conventional uh, Christianity, which is kind of sedentary and peaceful, this is and cultural, this is contradicted by our Lord's words, who says that the, the lot of those who truly believe in this world is being seized and persecuted, uh, being put in prison and led before authorities uh, so that you can give testimony. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about religious freedom. Mm. And, you know, in the world today, Christians are being persecuted more than they've ever been in, in sheer numbers in so many places in the world. People are suffering terribly for their Christian faith and being put to death, being put to the sword, and being discriminated against in the most horrible ways. So here in the United States, we lived a kind of comfortable uh, world, uh, although I must say Catholic discrimination against Catholics in the United States 
uh, is part of our culture, you know. Seems uh, to be building. Well, uh, it was said that this is the last uh, last prejudice in the United States that is still acceptable as being anti-Catholic, whether overtly or not so overtly. And for a time, it seemed like we were being, Catholic faith was being accepted, particularly after Vatican II, you know, that we were kind of going along with the, with the crowd. As the society has changed so radically, uh, and not for the better when it comes to uh, faith and morals, and as we um, uh, have stuck to our guns about this and have to because it's it's our faith, uh, we now are being more and more overtly uh, attacked and much prejudice against uh, the Catholic faith. When that one Catholic judge was being uh, testifying before Congress, and uh, uh, he was actually challenged because he belongs to the Knights of Columbus, as yeah, if yeah. this was some kind of you know, because it, it, Knights of Columbus are pro-life and everything. Can you imagine? I mean, I, if I would that was that judge, I would have said, well, uh, Senator, you know, or, or would you be opposed to John F. Kennedy? He was a, a Knight of Columbus. Uh, but the point is that this is happening more and more, and it will continue because the battle is really getting pretty severe. Intense. Intense. So our Lord's words about being dragged before kings and governors because of his name, and he says, it will lead you to giving testimony. And this is the most crucial thing that a person can face. If you are ever held to account for your faith before others and you deny Christ and you deny your faith to get along uh, or to go, to go along, well, you, you better read this gospel very carefully. At the same time, you should also read it for the consolation when Jesus says, you don't have to prepare your defense beforehand for I myself shall give you a wisdom in speaking that all your adversaries will be powerless to resist or refute. And then he says, even your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will put you to death because of me. Wow, you know? So what are we surprised at in our country today or in the world when, we, when, we, when we're told that to be a Catholic and to hold on to your Catholic faith is not, go, not going to be easy all the time? But so he's bringing out the stark reality of yeah. what it means to be a Catholic back then, or a Christian back then, and a Catholic today. Right. I mean, does do they think? Do people think that Jesus was talking just about the Emperor Nero doing this? Mm-hmm. It's been true in every single age, and uh, it's not far from us now. And uh, but he says, "Not a hair of your head will be destroyed by your perseverance. You will secure your lives." Perseverance, you know, Saint Augustine says, "Not how you start; it's it's how you persevere to the end." Archbishop, we're uh, quickly running out of time, so let's try to get in a couple of questions from our listeners. Rachel from North Canaan says, How can we be devoted to the things of God and also be effective in other areas of our life, like work and relationships? I want to be a more faithful person, but I feel like I am worn thin and can't allot enough time to all of my responsibilities. Well, Rachel, being faithful, the only way that you can actually exercise fidelity is by doing the very things that uh, pull us or stretch us or challenge us or uh, somehow test our fidelity. You know, everybody can be faithful when there's no price to be paid and when it's very easy. It seems to me that the word fidelity, faithfulness, is by definition, uh, by its very nature, something that is put to the test. And, of course, we just had this powerful gospel where our Lord is saying that very thing. So I think from what you're saying is, uh, you're talking about your time. You know, you want to be faithful uh, to certain maybe prayer and, you know, the, uh, religious practice, but you have other things. But remember that 
yes, we all struggle with a balance between those things in our schedule. But the point is that we also can be faithful and prayerful in fulfilling the duties of our state and life or toward other people, even though it might not be directly uh, something, uh, uh, you know, religious or, or in the sense of some religious exercise. But in all that we do, we have to be uh, uh, doing it for God and uh, doing it with faith, hope, and love. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord, the Church acclaims you as the universal King and the Prince of Peace. And as we prepare to celebrate the solemnity of your kingship, we pray that you will truly be the ruler of our hearts and minds and souls, and that through us and through our witness, even in the midst of uh, difficulty of suffering and even persecution, that through us your reign will be triumphant in the world through your power and grace. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. And uh, we're surely looking forward to being with you next Sunday when together we'll celebrate the Feast of Christ the King and talk a little bit more about uh, religious persecution and freedom of religion then. Until then, have a wonderful week. You too, thank you.